HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome restaurateur and mixologist, Sinjin Frizzell. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Sinjin about opening a tiki bar in Brooklyn. What makes a cocktail great? And we'll hear Sinjin's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We know that Julia liked wine and passionately promoted American winemakers. She also appreciated a good cocktail. Her husband, Paul, was the mixologist in the family, even before the term came into parlance. He had a whole repertoire of elaborate cocktail recipes, but their go-to after-work drink was a reverse martini, basically double vermouth to the amount of gin with a twist. Now, the cocktail era was at its post-war peak when Julia and Paul were living in Paris and in their entertaining prime. As someone much younger, I did not realize until I read David Lebovitz's terrific book, Drinking French, that there's a direct connection between cocktails, World War II, and Franco-American cocktail culture. Here's a hint. A lot of liqueurs were invented to help soldiers imbibe medicine to survive the war. All right, you guessed it. Today's show is dedicated to cocktails. Joining us is someone who shares Julia and Paul's reverence for the delights of a well-made cocktail, Sinjin Frizzell. Sinjin is an award-winning writer, bartender, and restaurateur. He learned the art of mixology at the cocktail trend-setting Pegu Club in New York City's Soho 
before opening the critically acclaimed cafe bar, Fort Defiance, in Brooklyn's Red Hook neighborhood. During COVID-19, it morphed into the Fort Defiance General Store to better serve the community. In 2021, Sinjin and his partners Ben Schneider and Chef Zoe Kim reopened Brooklyn's historic Gage and Tolner Oyster and Chop House, which dates back to 1879 and in more recent history, even boasted Edna Lewis as chef. After languishing in the naughty oddies as an Arby's and discount clothing store, the restored to its former glory Gage and Tolner now also sports a permanent iteration of Fort Defiance's tiki bar pop-up christened the Sunken Harbor Club, which is neither sunken nor a club, but upstairs from Gage and Tolner's beautiful dining room. Beyond his entrepreneurial pursuits, you may have read Sinjin's food writing as drinks correspondent for Men's Journal or in Bon Appetit, Savour, or Fine Cooking magazines. Sinjin joins us today to share his restaurant metamorphosis stories and to talk about creating great cocktail culture. Welcome to the podcast, Sinjin. Hey, thanks for having me, Todd. Thanks for uh, pronouncing my name so effortlessly. (laughs) <laughs> years of practice. Um, but but thank you. It's always fun to have someone with a, a fun name to say um, that doesn't yeah. have too many syllables. So with that in mind, Sinjin, who came first, Sinjin the restaurateur or Sinjin the mixologist? Oh, Sinjin the mixologist, for sure. I, I would say like Sinjin the food, the food enthusiast, um, probably first of all. Um, I started to get into mixology in the early 2000s or even the late 90s um, when there really was nowhere to go <laughs> to get a cocktail, um, but you could make them at home. And I, I was really into these old cocktail books and sort of the, the conversations that were happening online on sites like Drink Boy. I'm really uh, dating myself by making that reference. but. Um, and to a certain extent on e-gullet, uh, it, it was kind of an exciting place because, you know, in those er- early days of the internet, you would develop these passions and then you would go on the internet to see if anyone else shared them with you. And finding those uh, kindred souls was really exciting. So I met people online on these message boards that I'm still friends with now, you know, 20 years later. Um, so well, yeah, and I'm visualizing it yeah, go ahead. for like the younger audience mm-hmm. <laughs> who may have not been there at the beginning of the internet or as my kids are like, what do you mean it didn't exist before? <laughs> right. What did you do? You're talking about like, it was just words, right? There were no images. There was no graphical interface. It was just like, what were they called? Listservs. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> right. So you had to describe the cocktails. There were no Instagram photos of what people were doing. Right. About. If if people describe the internet in those days as like the Wild West, this would be like the like the side of the saloon. There would be like some messages there, you know, uh, tacked up with a nail or something, and you would go back and read them every once in a while. That's like that's like what it was. Well, and that's an interesting way because obviously the two things I think most of with cocktails is taste and the visual look of <laughs> right. them. And so it, it, how, how did you translate what we, you were seeing on these listservs into uh, something uh, physical? Well, to to be quite honest, it, it like, you know, it was, it was pretty geeky. So it was like, it wasn't so much about what cocktails tasted like, but, you know, 
who had found a you know 1890 edition of the Jerry Thomas you know how to mix uh, drinks or something like or you know found some discovery of an old um, you know version of a Saturn uh, cocktail that had some ingredient that we hadn't seen before. I mean, it was like it was very esoteric. <laughs> and kind of a little bit hard to keep up with, but we were all sort of learning at the same time. Like we were creating this collection of knowledge that really didn't exist up to this point because nobody had bothered to gather it. It was all this information about cocktails was locked away in these old books and no one had the books and they were sitting in uh, basements and attics and, you know, bookstore shelves and, and the, and the information was locked away and wasn't being shared. So this is like the first time that that, that, that information was beginning to be shared among aficionados. And it led to, it led to, it led to everything. I mean, it led to sort of like what, what happened then is, you know, in the 2000, Sasha uh, Petrosky opened uh, Milk and Honey in New York. And all of a sudden there was a place to go. Um, and and go and meet meet these people in in real life and and discuss the cocktails over a drink and then I think I think Audrey Saunders my uh, mentor opened Pegu Club I believe in 2006 it could have been 2005 but um, when that place opened I was like wow this is it I got to change my life I got to do everything I need to do in order to get a job at this place because this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I'm assuming the, the whole – I was trying to think in my head of like, okay, why did cocktails sort of have this rise to popularity and then sort of fall? And I think one reason you're saying there was nowhere to go is because it fell out of fashion. That wasn't where people were going. I can't remember what they were drinking in the 90s. But um, is that part of your interest in it is is not just the drinks themselves but the whole sort of ambiance and vibe and culture that surrounds cocktail culture? Yeah. So in the – in the early to mid uh, 2000s, the cocktail scene was really exciting. We really felt like we were, you know, at the forefront of, at the vanguard of uh, something. And, um, you know, the world was very small. So you got to know everyone in it really quickly. And, you know, the people in the world were, you know, they were, they were nerds and, and um, they knew that they were going to be made fun of by people that, that said, you know, these uh, drinks are too fancy and, why are we drinking out of these little glasses? And and but they didn't care, and they just kind of pressed forward and created this, you know, this uh, cocktail scene in New York. That's the scene I can, you know, speak to the the best. And 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 why do you think it's that that scene, which it, it's not that they invented it a whole cloth, as you said, in the books and things, it existed before, particularly after World War II, maybe up until Vietnam quite heavily what what do you think it was that was drawing people back to it well to be honest i think it i think you know to get into it that in the 90s you know i was in my 20s right and um uh and i don't know if anyone listening is is as old as i am but but uh but there was yes, sort we of have all ranges very wide audience okay range. so there was this sort of um this sort of movement in the nineties that was like, it was when like sort of retro got really big. And by retro, I mean, there was, it was just sort of this grab bag of styles that you could um, mix and match. And by that, I mean, like, I'm talking about like, like the swinger culture, like swing dancing. I'm talking about like hot rod culture, tiki to a certain extent. Um, 
like uh, beatnik style stuff, Rat Pack, you know, Las Vegas stuff in the way that people dress, the music that they listen to, the clubs that they went to. And like there was interest in cocktails that was kind of bubbling under the surface of that, especially when you get into like Tiki and Rat Pack stuff. But it, but people didn't know what to do. Like they, they, they wanted to drink the cocktails. They liked the style and they liked the fashion, and they thought you know cocktails went along with it. Uh, but what, what do we put in these glasses? So you know, you had uh, bands like uh, Combustible Edison doing this sort of this new lounge music, um, and they you know named a drink after themselves, and then they would you know get the bars to serve the drink at the concerts that they put on. Anyway, all I have to say is that that it was part. I, I feel like the beginning was part of this sort of, you know, a counterculture retro thing. And then in the two thousands, you know, people started to really look into sort of these old sources, find these old uh, cocktail books, and say, hey, you know what? There's actually something here. Like, there's it's more than just a drink in a cute glass. You know, we can find out who invented this drink and what their lives were like, and and what else they did, and where they worked, and who they worked with, and and start to you start to kind of put together this this like lost world, um, and really start to understand what drinking before prohibition was like in America and around the world, and that just fascinated people because it was this really rich history, um, and once we all kind of tapped into that. Then we started to lay the foundational blocks for what would uh, become like the the cocktail renaissance. Which, by the way, you know, we won. Like we <laughs> we did what we set out to do. I remember uh, talking to Dale DeGroff in the early two thousands. I took a class with him at the ICE, and Dale mm. DeGroff being sort of the godfather of of the American cocktail renaissance, and he said. If I could, if I do all this work, if I go out there and educate people, I run these classes and I do this and that, and in 10 years, you can go into a airport bar and you can order a Manhattan and it, what you get more or less resembles a Manhattan cocktail, I will have done my job. And I think it took a little longer than 10 years, but I think, I think he did his work. I think his work was successful. And, um, you know, it's a it, the the scene now is just it's just so different than it was uh, twenty years ago. Well, and I can see how it was also sort of supercharged by in the two thousands when mid century modern as a sort of style even into architecture, and then augmented by the popularity of Mad Men. Absolutely, it all that kind of retro thing kind of made people even more fascinated. Not only fascinated, but wanting to experience that kind of world and and i can see that yeah you also had like a sex in the city and the cosmopolitan that was kind of late 90s but it did also sort of provide some you know jet fuel to the movement true yes no adding to that rediscovery and exploration so i think i learned a lot about gage and tolner's fascinating history um part of my family comes from brooklyn and i know very little about their lives there but I was also captivated by the creation of the Sunken Harbor Club and the fact that you had the idea to put a tiki bar in the middle of Brooklyn. Where did that inspiration come from and why a tiki bar? And probably you need to define for people what a tiki bar is. Right. Well, and what it isn't. So so, um, so 
the Sunken Harbor Club started as a tiki pop-up at Fort Defiance, as you identified. Uh, it was a Thursday night event. We did it every week. It was um, originated by a bartender there named Zach Overman, who has since moved to Seattle and opened a fabulous restaurant called Lorsan. Um, but, you know, we did it there for years, and then it just it just seemed like like it just wanted to grow. Like it just, it just needed more space. It wanted to be open seven days a week and it wanted to sort of expand the concept. And so I started to look for places in downtown Brooklyn to, to do it. And I started to look for partners. And I talked to a few because I didn't want to open another bar by myself. I wanted someone to handle the food and to help me out with the operations. And so I talked to a few people but then came back around to you know two of my uh, best friends, Ben Schneider and Sohee Kim, who are also successful restaurateurs. And I got them, got them interested. Ben and I were downtown looking for a space. We looked at some places that weren't going to work, and the realtor said to us, "I've got one more thing to show you. It's not what you're looking for, but you might want to have a look." And we said, "Okay," and. She started to start to walk us down Fulton Street, and then we crossed the street, and she started to head right to Gage and Tolner. And I said to Ben, "Is she taking us into Gage and Tolner right now?" And sure enough, she got the keys and let us in. And I couldn't believe it. The last time I had been in that building, it was a like kind of a clothing store, like a little a bit of a flea market. There were like multiple vendors in there. You couldn't really see the walls and the mirrors because they had these false walls sort of built in front of them. Uh, but when we went in there, it was all cleared out. You could see the room for the first time. And it was just like, it was just amazing. It was like walking into a cathedral. It was just awe-inspiring. And I couldn't believe that we were looking to open this little 800 square foot, you know, tropical bar. And all of a sudden this like 5,000 square foot Victorian mansion <laughs> with 125 years of history fell into our laps but that's the way it worked. Um, so we had to, we had to shift gears and we had to change everything. I mean, it was like from the first time we saw it, we were like, we need to make this happen. So, so it's sort of like, did you have this name, the sunken Harbor club already in mind, or you just knew you wanted to to take your Tiki bar pop up and give it a permanent home? So, so yeah, we did have the name, uh, the uh, sunken Harbor club. And when we went upstairs in that, building to the second floor of uh, Gage and Tolner and saw all the room up there. We saw, I mean, there's another a few thousand square foot on the second floor in a space that used to be a nail salon, a tattoo parlor, and a place to get grills, like for your teeth. Uh, and there was a hair salon there as well. Um, so we saw this space, it was all emptied out, you know, and um, and we thought, oh, we can put the Sunken Harbor Club up here. And then it all kind of fell into place. So, you know, the, the, the answer is like, it, it, I, I, I knew that the Sunken Harbor Club wanted to breathe and wanted more space and wanted to be its own thing. And then it just sort of all kind of, it came together at the same time. And the design, the Sunken Harbor Club setting, is that all new versus the Gage and Tolner dining room, which is historic? Yes, that is all new. It's all new, but designed to look old. The, 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 um, the question that I think that that we are that the design is trying to answer is um, if there is a secret 
tiki club located above a 19th century um, oyster and chop house, you know, and it was built in 1890, what would it look like? Well, no, I think it's really successful. I bet people sometimes are amazed that it's not original. Oh, yeah. 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 We've fooled a lot of people. And I, and I want to continue to kind of blur the lines there between reality and fiction. That's kind of what the Southern Harbor Club is all about. Well, and dim, dim lighting helps, but yes, we, you have to backtrack now because you still haven't defined what a tiki bar is and isn't, but that relates to it being called this, be, the, the nautical theme, right? Okay, so tiki bar, like everyone, if you ask 100 people what a tiki bar is, you'll get 100 different answers. I mean, it could just, to some people, it's like, it's a thatched hut um, in somebody's backyard next to the pool where you can hang out and get a drink. And to some people, it's a, it's a guy with an umbrella um, selling beers out of a cooler at the beach. Um, but to okay, not to me, I'm thinking more that it comes from Trader Vic's. Hey, well, well, sure. You're, you're getting a lot closer with that. So for cocktail <laughs> people, it refers specifically to a style of bar that was invented in Southern California in, um, in the 1930s by a guy who came to call himself Don Beach. Trader Vic was his greatest imitator who um oh okay okay you know who who went international with him was very successful and invented the mai tai among other drinks but um yeah it, it refers specifically to that so i don't consider Southern harbor club a tiki bar per se because it's it doesn't follow sort of the design rules of of uh of a classic yeah it, it seems a little too re- refined whereas tiki stuff has a lot of like torches and more of a beach theme whereas yours has more of like a lovely ship theme right and it relies sometimes relies heavily on that sort of mid-century modern aesthetic that you were referring to earlier you know called uh polynesian pop in this case which we're trying to get away from for a lot of reasons and one of you know the most important reasons are you know there were times in the history of tiki when it kind of went uh it got creepy where it, uh, you know, got really, um, where it employed racist imagery and got, you know, it's always been sort of culturally appropriative, but it, it got, it, it, it went to some dark places and we want to sort of avoid that. We don't think it's fun and, um, you know, and it sh- it should be fun. And also there's nothing about the Polynesian pop aesthetic that I feel like I need to repeat. I feel like, there are other bars who do it really well. We're going for sort of a Victorian tropical aesthetic, whatever that means. Yeah, I was going to say, so sorry. I use Tiki Bar because I think um, I other, well, it, it. I guess you did use the Tiki Bar thing, theme or moniker when you were at Fort Defiance. Yes. Journalists have picked that up when describing the Sunken Harbor Club, maybe. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's not a term that we self-apply, but I know that you know, people are going to use it because it's close enough and, and that's fine, but it's, it's not something that we use. What do you use? We say tropical. I I think that's where sort of the industry is going now. It's no one wants to be associated with sort of, you know, the, the depictions of uh, uh, Pacific Islanders that sort of tiki, tiki Mm. imagery was famous for in the middle of the 20th century. No one wants to get involved with that stuff. That's true. So people who don't know, often Tiki might have pictures or images of like someone in a grass skirt doing the hula or something like that. Right. And they depict Islanders as sort of these like carefree, like hypersexualized 
alcoholic sometimes. It's like, it's weird and gross and nobody likes it. Or like the mixture of what they did in White Lotus if you watch that. In the, right. those tensions. <laughs> exactly. All right. So for those who don't know, please go and look up the Sunken Harbor Club online and you'll see the beautiful imagery that really relate to Gage and Tolner's history and um, is uh, both beautiful and aesthetically pleasing without being culturally appropriative. Although I think you do have a, do you have a mermaid in the I do have a mermaid. Yeah. Well, so the, the, the interior of the, of the club is sort of meant to look like a sunken ship. Like it's looks like you're inside a ship that has settled to the bottom of the ocean and then listed slightly to one side. So you're just down there and there is a mural of a mermaid seen through like sort of a ship's window lattice, uh, if you will. And, um, and she's sort of in a classic kind of odalesque pose, and she's looking over her shoulder, and she does not look super pleased to have you there. <laughs> she's she's sort of like, what are you doing here? Uh, and depending on the light that we have on her, at last call, we make the light red, and she looks really angry. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk more specifically about crafting great cocktails and what they serve at the Sunken Harbor Club with Sinjin Frizzell. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back. We're talking to restaurateur and mixologist Sinjin Frizzell, co-owner of Brooklyn's Gage and Tolner Chop House and its companion bar, the Sunken Harbor Club. Okay, so Sinjin, you've done a great job of, of setting the stage because we're yeah. only audio, <laughs> of what the Sunken Harbor Club looks like and what were the inspirations for it. And, you know, I love that it's upstairs yep. when it's sunken. Um, but let's talk about the menu and specifically maybe before we talk about your menu, kind of get you as a mixologist what you define as like what makes a great cocktail or what is a great cocktail. How do you think about it or describe that? Well, yeah, that's a, it's a tricky uh, question. I would say you know, there are kind of uh, two answers to it. So the the first answer is a concept that's pretty commonplace in the cocktail world now. But when I started working at the Pega Club in 2007, it was not, which is this concept of balance. Um, my um, mentor, Audrey Saunders, talked about this concept incessantly in those days. And it really is about just sort of making sure that that the ingredients of the drink are all in harmony, that they're represented in the right uh, proportion, that they all go together, and that uh, the drink is not overly strong, it's not overly sweet, it's not overly sour, it's not overly bitter, but but everything is kind of, you know, represented in the right uh, proportions. It's it's uh, it sounds simple, but it's not it's not as easy to do in in real life as as it sounds. 
Yeah, because I think think of sometimes when I go, maybe not specifically to a cocktail bar, but in a bar to have a drink, I think, uh, do I want a cocktail? And those are two things that always run through my head is like, do I feel like it knocking me out with it being so strong? And do I feel like something super sickly sweet? Mm -hmm. Because I, I assume for you, those are the errors that are made by people who do not invest enough time and attention in, in making their cocktails. Right. And there, there's and there's another thing, which is the, the easiest way to go wrong at a, a cocktail bar, which is it's got to be ice cold. It's got to be ice cold. And I feel like there are some bars that spend a lot of time working on balance, but then not a lot of time putting out a drink that's ice cold when it hits the table, which is super important. Um, and it's the easiest way to make a, a good drink bad. Why does it why why does it need to be ice cold? What is it that now I'm getting into like geeky chemistry? Like why is it that a cocktail more than any other drink has to be ice cold? Um, a geeky chemist could answer that question for you, but I I can tell you that just from a from a from a consumer uh, point of view, it's just it's it's what you expect. It is it is like it's usually the first you know your first uh, drink of the night. Like I think about like the martinis at. Um, Gage and Tolner. And we have uh, talked about uh, temperature on these things a lot. We've measured the temperature as the drink uh, goes out the door or it goes to the table. And um, yeah, it's just, the, it's the most important thing. It's why we serve the martinis there with the little sidecars, the little bottles nestled into a little bowl of crushed ice. That's, you know, so half your drink is waiting in that little, in that little sidecar bottle waiting for you to finish the first cold half. So the second half of your drink is just as cold as the first. I mean, uh, and we're not the first bar to do that by any means, but it's a good practice. You know, my sort of um, spiritual inspiration is a cocktail writer named uh, Charles H. Baker Jr., who whose uh, book, The Gentleman's Companion, I was introduced to in 2000. And he... Um, you know, traveled around the world in the 20s and 30s, collecting recipes for good things to drink and eat. And um, yeah, and, and he had in the in the in the you know the very first uh, section of his book, there were some uh, tips for drink makers, and one was you know serve cold drinks Arctic cold, serve uh, hot drinks uh, piping hot, um, anything else, and you're you're asking for trouble. So presumably for the majority of cocktails, the coldness, it just makes the different elements, we don't, neither of us know why scientifically, but taste and perform at their best. There is like a refreshing moment when it first hits your tongue, it kind of numbs your tongue, but then the drink, as the drink sort of warms in your mouth, all the flavors start to come out. And I, yeah, I can't explain exactly chemically why it works, but it, it, it does. The colder, the better. Well, and that's right. I don't know the chemistry also, right? I like you're a restaurateur. It drives me nuts how much um, white wine is served like freezing cold. Right. And you cannot taste it if it's really cold. It tastes totally different. I'm always like, I'm not going to drink that until it's closer to room temperature. Because yes, you want your white wine chilled, but you don't want it like as chilled as a Coca-Cola. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. But I don't know why. It just just is. All right. So let's talk about the, the the menu specifically, because there's a wide range of cocktails. And at least from, I presume you can order whatever you want from the bartender in terms of mixed drinks, but you have a very specific set of cocktails on your menu. How did that get designed or 
what's the backstory on on what you have on offer? Right. Well, the head bartender at the Sunken, Sunken Harbor Club is Stephen Bielowski, and the chief cocktail officer um, is a guy named Garrett Richard. Um, Garrett ran a tiki pop-up called Exotica for for many years in New York. Really, it was the most successful and longest running uh, tiki uh, pop-up event, and people loved it. Um, he also worked with Dave Arnold um, at existing uh, conditions. Are you familiar with uh, Dave Arnold's work? I no, I don't think I am, but oh. that's also a really common name. So oh, okay. tell, tell us more, and that'll fill everybody in who doesn't know. He he ran a website and has a podcast called uh, Cooking Issues, and he um, is sort of the, the 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 leading light in sort of the mixology, uh, the molecular uh, mixology um, field in the U.S. Um, sort of the Harold McGee of uh, the cocktail world. Um, he's uh, developed new tools for uh, bartenders, new uh, techniques. Um, you know, uh, generally b- brings the cocktails into into the lab and you know messes around with them there, and then lets everyone know what he finds. Um, so, so Garrett has a background there. So Garrett is very you know comfortable using these techniques of molecular mixology. You know, things like acidifying pineapple juice so that it becomes the same acidity level of as lime juice so you can swap it out for lime juice in a recipe or sort of um you know using a centrifuge to clarify uh liquids um so we're we're sort of we're dabbling in all of that at uh the sunken harbor club now and steven was the head bartender of the uh, sunken harbor club when it existed at fort defiance i've been working with him for years so between the three of us, we sort of, you know, all added to the cocktail menu there. I would say probably Garrett came with the most sort of drinks that were ready to go, like locked and loaded that we could just uh, drop onto the menu. Um, but uh, but so it was sort of the, the three of us uh, came together and we really tried with this menu to make it different than a classic tiki bar uh, menu where I think... You know, people expect to have a lot of drinks on crushed ice, a lot of drinks with a lot of uh, fruit juices, a lot of really big drinks. And we sort of are doing a New York take on it. New York in the mixology world is known for more spirit forward drinks, sort of a, a subtle approach, a, a understated approach. So we're not going really big on the garnishes. Only one of our drinks is on fire, for instance. And uh, <laughs> they're not all full of blue, blue Coruscant. Right. And we serve a lot of drinks that are served on the rocks, are stirred, are served up in martini glasses. So it's, it's, um, and those are some of the best selling drinks. Sort of the, like the best selling drink the last I checked was one of Garrett's called the Tijuana Taxi, which is like sort of a mezcal Negroni with um, a little bit of uh, banana flavor in it it sounds so weird but it's so delicious mm, yes and it's it's, <laughs> it's, okay. it's served just down on one big rock and um you know with very minimal uh garnish so we're trying to do our own you know spin on things and and just sort of uh, present an alternative to to what people expect when they you know hit a uh, tiki bar we do have a few you know uh, big drinks we do have like I said, a drink that's served on fire. We have we have some that are served with flowers and 
various you know pineapple fronds and stuff like that but but uh but you but you get a mix so you get a a variety of uh drinks whatever you sort of experience you're looking for the menu can help you find it so you said what was it called a tijuana tijuana taxi and that so you said last you checked that's your most popular or best-selling cocktail? yeah yeah and after that comes the white zombie which is a drink that zach overman and i worked on at uh, fort defiance and after that is a drink of stevens i can't remember which one it is but i remember it, it, it was nice that we all like had a uh, drink in the top three so these are all because you talked about the history of cocktails and, and even tiki bars but these drinks are original to the sunken harbor club well although i'm sure they have relatives out there is that right um, yeah, I mean, we do have a Mai Tai on the list, um, and we have some drinks that are pretty close to some classic uh, tiki drinks, but, you know, we're doing something different enough w- with them that I thought that they merited their own name. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely sort of, you know, we're very aware of what the, the tiki greatest hits are, what sort of the tiki fans who come to the bar are looking for, and we're, we're set up to provide them with with uh with uh something close you know a drink that um a drink that we invented at the sunken harbor club at uh, fort defiance called the angostura colada is now on the menu at a lot of uh tiki bars nationwide including um at the um the uh tiki bar at uh disneyland which is really cool they they slightly changed the name we called it an angostura colada that they call it a Angolada, but it's essentially the same drink. And it was that drink was invented by Zach Overman in the mid 2000s or the mid uh, 20 teens. And I, I assume it's imitation is the sincerest form of flattery rather than he's licensed it to uh, the Walt Disney Corporation. Well, you know, we're not going up against the mouse's lawyers on this one. <laughs> that would be a fool's, fool's errand. But uh, yes, yeah, so so imitation is the is the most sincere form of flattery. This drink uses Angostura bitters, which is an ingredient that you typically add in dashes to a cocktail. We're using that as sort of the main ingredient and then adding layers of uh, coconut and pineapple. And it's, it's, it's a wild drink, but it's, it's really good. Yeah, no, it sounds it. I, I did during the height of lockdown was when I got my hands on David Lebovitz's book, which if you haven't seen it is terrific. No, I got drinking French. Yeah, I mean, it's very specific to uh, French liqueurs and the drinks you find in France. But one of the things he describes is how how I didn't realize how closely related to American cocktail culture, what French drinks are and French liqueurs and all of that. But um a lot of them use Angostura bitters, which I then got and was always like, I've never tasted it by itself and kind of expected it to be more like savory than sweet. But it's kind of like Cointreau, no, in its flavor, like a little bit. It's like kind of orangey, isn't it? Um, I guess depends there are different on the, varieties. The, depends on the one that you get. The the flavor notes that I get off of the the classic Angostura, and we're talking about the, the, the one with the yellow cap but not the orange uh, – bitters which they also oh yes i might have only been able to get the orange cap one there you go there you go so that's why it's kind of a contrary the but the the one um like the classic one is is called aromatic bitters and it really has a lot of you know baking spice flavors that you associate with the caribbean so um 
allspice, cinnamon, clove, that kind of thing. Well, we could probably go into the history of that, but I, I do want to ask you before we go to break, I've heard a little bird told me that you have some expansion plans or you're starting to explore them. Is there anything you can reveal or share with us? Oh, yeah. Well, expand, you know, when I, at uh, Fort Defiance, I never thought about expanding it because it was so much a part of its neighborhood and I, I didn't think it would work anywhere else. But Sunken Harbor Club is kind of made to expand. It is, you know, the the fictional the fictional origins of it. It's a it's an actual members club that dates back hundreds of years and had uh, chapters all over the world. Um, you know, this is all fiction, but to me, it's kind of true. Uh, so yeah. Wait. So you're making that up, or you you gave your bar its own backstory? I gave I gave my bar its own backstory. So the, Great. the Love it. okay. Yeah, just the, to clarify. Yeah, the story is that that because um, we're just bashing Disney for borrowing. So we that's right. Have to. <laughs> ben and I, my partner uh, Ben and I, found uh, the ruins of the uh, Sunken Harbor Club upstairs on the second floor of uh, the Gage and Toner, and found their sort of their log books where they wrote everything down. Called they call these books the Compendium Bibendium, and they were written in a secret code that it took Ben and I three years to crack. And as we crack more of the code, we'll bring you more of the cocktails that they recorded the recipes of in the Compendium Bibendium. You see? So, uh, so yeah, so we found, turns out that we found another chapter in Bermuda and we're going there to reopen the Sunken Harbor Club. So you went to Bermuda on holiday and a real estate agent took you to a historic restaurant and you went upstairs and found another one of these clubs. Something like that. We, we, but in also in real life, we partnered with a hotel group named uh, Dovetail and Co. And they're, um, they bought this amazing resort in Bermuda called Cambridge uh, Beaches that actually dates back really far, uh, the history on the island. Um, and uh, and yeah, we're opening up a, a Sunken Harbor Club there. And I'll tell you why it's cool, because Cambridge uh, Beaches occupies a uh, peninsula where you have the ocean on one side and the bay on the other. It's the only thing on the peninsula outside of the home of Tommy Tucker local legend in uh, Bermuda and sort of the inventor of marine archaeology. He taught the world how to excavate artifacts from shipwrecks. So it's like it fits in so, so beautifully and it couldn't, it couldn't be better. Great. Well, and the one thing I should say, because in my mind, I don't think of New York as nautical as it is, but yeah. of course the five boroughs are surrounded by water and almost every borough is a port and has ports. So it, I feel like the kind of nautical nature of New York gets lost very easily, but it, it is very connected in the same way. Yeah, and I grew up uh, sailing. My, uh, my father had a boat, and um, I still sail as often as I can, and I still love it, and it's just you know, part of my uh, DNA. All right. After the break, we're going to check on Sinjin's DNA a little bit further when we hear his Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it. 
the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Joya's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Joya Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Joya memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Sinjin, what's your Joya Moment? So, I, you know, I was an English major in school. I went to uh, Tulane in uh, New Orleans. And Julia Child, to me, I knew about her, but, um, you know, I knew her as someone that my grandmother used to watch on television um, mm-hmm. and was aware of her, but, but that's it. I started to, um, to date this young woman who, uh, it turned out, had a cookbook collection. She had, um, you know, hundreds of old uh, cookbooks at her house. And I remember one of the first ones I pulled off the shelf was, was a first edition of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 1 and 2. And just the to hold that in your hands, it feels, it's the, I'm sure you know it, it's the, you know, the old edition with sort of the pattern on the front and it's a very plain cover and um, and it's it was just gorgeous. And it, it was, you know, separated in two volumes, which gives it kind of this scholarly heft. I remember mm. cracking that book and thinking, "Oh wow, this 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 woman could write. This is like a whole mm. it's like a whole world here for me to to explore." And then, you know, reading Julia Child in that book then led to the writings of MFK Fisher, who had a huge influence on my life. You know, Elizabeth David and Lewis. So it was sort of the the gateway uh, drug for me into the world of food writing. And, uh, and after that, I was hooked. I'm still, I'm still hooked. I think you're the first person who's used gateway drug in their joy. (laughs) (laughs) So points of points for a new approach, but no, I think that's also something that doesn't get discussed enough is Julia's talent at writing. Yeah. And, um, while she had co-authors, I think since the book was written in English, I think, you know, the majority of the writing in mastering and certainly in volume two was done by Julia. And then you can read, you know, we're always wrestling with Julia quotes too, because there's a lot floating out there that we can't attribute to Julia. Mm -hmm. We can't source, or actually we're like, that doesn't actually sound, she had a very specific diction and cadence, both how she spoke, but also how she wrote that that's distinctive. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, how mastering the art can be a gateway drug and for joining us today. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This has been a great pleasure. It's our pleasure. And uh, we look forward to having a drink with you at the Sunken Harbor Club. Anytime. And thanks, everyone, for listening. You can check out the latest from Sinjin's cocktail-filled world. It's at Sinjin Frizzell, and Sinjin is spelled like St. John at gage.and.tolner and at Sunken Harbor Club NYC on Instagram, or you can go to gageandtolner.com. Make sure you're following us. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. And make sure you're following at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. The lineup for the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara is now live. Register your interest in joining us to eat and drink our way across Santa Barbara County, May 16th to 22nd on sbce.events. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. 
Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.